You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, one of the pastors here at King's Church, and we're continuing in our series of the book of Exodus. Uh, Today, we're looking at perhaps one of the more famous or familiar passages in the book of Exodus. Now, this upcoming uh, week, uh, in three days, actually, my oldest daughter, or our oldest daughter, I should say, Ellie, is turning five. Oh, uh, you can hold off on that, but yeah, it's fine. You jumped the gun on me. That's all right. Uh, Ellie, uh, Ellie, she's too cute to not behold. I understand. Uh, Ellie is turning five. Now, Young Ellie, uh, in her five years of living here in D.C., has somehow found a way to eclipse fame uh, in, in a way that I just can't ever fathom here. I mean, she is so much more famous in this city than her dad. Uh, and I'm super proud of this, right? Uh, this girl has made it on um, basically any major news outlet in any way that publicity can be shown in this city. She has found a way to make her presence known. And so I just want to give you a few examples. The first one, Nick, go ahead and put that one up there. Uh, this is Ellie uh, a few years ago during the height of the pandemic. She's so cute, isn't she? Um, just adorable. Uh, Ellie was on uh, Channel 4 NBC News. Uh, they ran a special story on her because of these rocks that she was painting. And she would leave these rocks called, she named them Happy Rocks, and she would leave them around the city during the pandemic when people really weren't getting out much, and people began to request these rocks. It became such a big story that they literally ran an entire news story on her in the summer of 2020. All right, next, uh, Ellie has continued her fame now, and she is the poster child for a Jewish D.C. summer camp. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, uh, oh, man, um... It's a great camp. It's a really great camp to send your kids to. Uh, but uh, she now, for two summers, has become their poster child for all of their, pu- their publication stuff or promotions. Uh, and then perhaps uh, most recently, uh, Ellie became uh, quite famous on Instagram this past week on a popular Instagram. Uh, <laughs> some of you follow this Instagram account uh, called Live from Snack Time. And uh, Ellie is quoted here uh, after leaving a party, and this quote got over 24,000 likes. Uh, she said as, as she was leaving a party, that was fun, but I really love leaving, right? <laughs> And I love watching the comments roll, and the co- hundreds and hundreds of comments come through on this, uh, this quote from our daughter. And people are like, we need to make t-shirts out of this, or, you know, Ellie is my people. And like, you know, they, they really gravitate towards uh, our, dear, our dear Ellie. Now, as funny as that quote is, I, I wanted to leave that up on the screen for a moment, because I think it is something that we all resonate with. And that really is this fleeting nature of things we love in life. When we think about it, things have little satisfaction. Parties, enjoyment, the things that we gravitate towards, we love them for a moment, but then just like our dear Ellie, that we love leaving those things for others. We're so quick to flee the things that we love, to go from the things that we love, perhaps it's anxiety, boredom, impatience, or dissatisfaction, but whatever it is, the motivation, we find ourselves often drifting away from one thing to the next, from one thing that we might think we love to something that maybe will provide more satisfaction, more love in our lives. In essence, I think Ellie gets it right here. We love leaving things. We love the act of leaving one thing for another. And perhaps when it comes to the greater things in life, the bigger questions about who God is and what he has done for us, even when we think about all that he has done for us, our hearts still tend to drift away from him into other things. 
As one famous hymn writer said in the, the hymn, Come Thou Founts, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We really do love leaving. And the Bible calls this leaving, the Bible calls this act of wondering idolatry. It's the act of leaving one thing for something else that we believe will find greater satisfaction, hope, and purpose in. It is truly that act of leaving one thing that we believe is more important than God, that absorbs our heart and imagination more than God, anything that we seek to give us what only God can give us. And deep down, we realize that this is a problem for all of us. It's something we all deal with. In reality, we might think of the word idolatry as something that's from antiquity, but it's something we're far more familiar with than we want to give ourselves credit for. It's something that's closer to the, the realness of our hearts and how we operate in this life than we believe. We really are prone to leave the God we love. Now today in this passage, we're going to look at this passage, and the main idea of this passage is hope for us today. That as we think about the sobering fact that all of our hearts have that prone to wonder mentality. All of our hearts desire to leave one thing for something else. There is hope that God alone can free us from that problem. That God alone can bring freedom from this issue that we all deal with in life. This issue of idolatry. So we're going to look at this passage, and I, I hope and pray that this really weighty topic and this weighty passage today, that we'll take a sobering look at what idolatry is and, and how it affects all of us, but that we'll see the freedom and the hope that we have in God today. That even though it's something we all struggle with, we have an opportunity today before God to experience greater enjoyment, greater hope, greater freedom in who He is than the idols of the culture that our hearts are so easily gravitating towards. And our outline is going to flow straight from the text, and we're going to look at it in two parts today. Part one, we're going to look at what we forget and the things that we forget, just like the people of Israel, is what drifts us into idolatry. And then part two, we're going to look at what God remembers. That the hope is not in what we forget, but that even in our forgetfulness, God remembers something. And there's hope in what he remembers in this passage. And so as we get into the text, by way of recap, it's important for us just to kind of know where we are in the story of Israel and Exodus, because it's going to give us a lot of context and background to what's actually taking place here in Exodus 32. Now, the book of Exodus, as we've said before, is the second book of the Bible, and it's really telling the story of Israel. These people have been uh, captive. Uh, they've been captive in, uh, in Egypt for 400 years, right, at the beginning of the book. And in that 400 years of slavery, you know, the oppression of the Egyptians, they still clung to the promises of God. They never forgot God's promises for his people that he gave to his forefathers. The promises that one day, this seemingly unknown and unimportant people, he would make them great. And he would make them a great people that the world would know who their God is. And this whole time in their slavery, they have clung to that promise. And then God acts on their behalf in the book of Exodus. He is their great deliverer. He gives them victory over their enemy. And in doing so, they're led out of Egypt. But when they're led out of Egypt, he doesn't just rescue them, but he also blesses them. If we notice in Exodus 12, that he doesn't send them off empty-handed. That he actually, fought, they find favor with the Egyptians. And Exodus 12 tells us that the Egyptians basically give the Israelites whatever they want. And so what do they do? They collect a lot of gold and silver. And they take this, these gifts that God has given them to remind them of his lavishing love for them into the wilderness. And time and time again in the wilderness, God provides. He shows his faithfulness to his people. 
even before they get out there, he provides this, this cloud and this pillar of fire to protect them and to lead them. And then he parts the Red Sea for them to be delivered from Pharaoh and his army. And then after the parting of the Red Sea, while they're wandering in the wilderness, God miraculously provides food and water to care for them time and time again. And then he brings them to this place called Mount Sinai. And at the bottom of this mountain, he establishes this covenant with his people. He speaks to them. He tells them his law. He gives them these moral and civil codes to live by so that they could shape a culture, they could shape a nation that would bring honor and glory to God. And then he teaches them how to worship. And we saw that last two weeks with the tabernacle. And through all this in Exodus 24, their response is that they enter this covenant agreement with God. God is going to be their God and they're going to be his people. And they say to God, we're going to do everything that you taught us. We're going to do everything that you told us. We're going to, we're going to live it out, God. And then we find ourselves here at the base of the mountain in Exodus 32. And we see quickly that they have forgotten what God has done. Verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, when we read this, my first instinct was to say, this seems unbelievable, right? Like, really, guys? <laughs> like, like, you've got to this level? It's been three months since they left Egypt. Three short months, and evidently everything we just talked about, they have seemingly forgot in this moment. It has gone from their minds. And to add fuel to the fire, they take the stuff that God gave them as a gift of their deliverance, and they melt it down to make another God. And later Moses would describe this, later in the chapter, he would say that this was a great sin before God. Now, when I thought about this more, I came to a realization. They didn't just wake up one morning and decide, hey, we're just going to blow this thing up, right? Like, like, let's just mess up really big, right? Let's just see if we can get God really angry at us. Maybe he'll kill us because it's boring out here in the mountain, bottom of the mountain. This party's dull. We don't know what's going to happen. Let's just wake up one morning. Let's make a new God right? That's not, that's not what happens. Just like someone just doesn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be addicted to pornography. Someone doesn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to get involved in a scandal at my work, right? There's something that happens <laughs> upstream, some of you, right? Uh, there's, <laughs> there's something that happens way upstream from that, that takes place in our lives. There's something that happens way upstream before we begin to build a calf. And that is what's most lethal about this thing called idolatry. You see, the greatness of the sin that the people of Israel committed was not in how spectacular it was, but how lethal it is, how subtle it can become. 
when Abby and I were first dating, she decided to go overseas on a mission trip to India. Uh, and then after those few months, she came back. And when she came back, she was feeling a little off. She acted a little differently. She was getting sick all the time. We really couldn't figure out what was going on. At first, I thought she just didn't like my company anymore. Maybe this wasn't going anywhere. But, uh, but praise God, that wasn't the case. Right? What we found out months later was she actually carried a parasite back from India. Uh, and, and that parasite was causing all kinds of disruptives uh, to, her, to her, her system. Now, I share that story because this is really how the greatness of sin works. Because the greatness of a sickness of a parasite is that it's unseen. The greatness of the sickness of a parasite is that it's hidden, that no one can see it. And the same is true for sin, right? We don't just wake up one morning and decide we're going to wreck it all. There's something spiritual inside of us. There's a spiritual parasite that's living inside of us. And over time, it goes unseen and hidden. And it slowly begins to turn us away from the glory of God back to the darkness of our humanity. C.S. Lewis, he describes it this way in the uh, famous work, The Screwtape Letters, and, which is basically a conversation between the senior and junior devil. Uh, they're trying to lead this man to temptation. This is what they say about the nature of sin, or, or what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, it does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the person away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. This is how idolatry works in our lives. It's these little microbes, these parasites that pull us away from God, and we don't even see it until it begins to turn us back into the darkness of our humanity. And there's three phrases in this first verse that kind of show us they are the signposts of the slippery slope away from God, which ends up in worship of an idol, and here they are. First, the people saw something. It says that they saw that Moses delayed. Now, the word saw there is the word perceive. They didn't literally see this. It wasn't a literal thing, right? Moses told them, hey, in Exodus 24, I'm going up on the mountain, and I'm going to be gone for a while. Like, they knew that already. And when it says that they saw what's happening is they're perceiving something. They miss him. And as they miss him, they begin to wonder. As they miss him, they begin to grow anxious. And when it says that they saw Moses, they begin to question, right? Is Moses really coming back? Is God really there? Is there really this thing called the promised land for us? And as they perceive this, the next thing that happens is they say, Moses has delayed. They perceive that Moses has delayed. Now, the word delayed there doesn't mean that Moses, his flight has been delayed to land back down at the bottom of the mountain, okay? Like, he's not late. <laughs> it's not that, that, well, Moses, you said you were coming back at this time and you haven't made it yet. You're, you're delayed, no, that word actually has a, a deeper meaning there. What, what they're saying is they're perceiving that most late. What's leading is they're confused. And in the confusion, they, be, they realize their vulnerability. Moses, where are you? Where is our man? And in his delay, they begin to panic. And what's being described here is what it means to be human, right? I mean, do we not all feel that? We all feel moments when we are more vulnerable, when circumstances come into our lives and we realize we're not as in control as we thought we were. We realize that we're more confused about what's going to happen in the next five years than we thought we were. And here they perceive that Moses has delayed and, and they're worried, they're scared, they're fearful, they're vulnerable. They don't know if Moses is going to come back. And so what do they do? They look to something outside of themselves for help. And don't we do the same? When circumstances come upon our hearts and our lives that begin to be unbearable and in our vulnerability and our confusion and our anxiety, we look to something else, something outside of our else. We have to have something to face the future. And they look up to who? Aaron. 
They face Aaron. They say, Aaron, we need something to help us here. We need something real, something tangible to face our confusion, our vulnerability, and our panic that's in our hearts right now. We need something to face the problems we're dealing with. And if it's not God, then downstream somewhere it will be an idol. Because all of us in life are seeking something to give us security, something to give us hope. And the calf was just the representation of where they were putting their hope. The calf was just the representation of Egypt. We've often said that although God has brought Israel out of Egypt, it is taking a long time for Egypt to be brought out of Israel's heart. And here they immediately go back straight to where their hope was, to Egypt, with this calf, which was just a cultural symbol for the Egyptians to find hope and purpose. It was a sign of strength, a sign of fertility, a sign of wealth. And Egypt's not the only culture that has those things. Every culture has those things that we look to for significance, for wealth, for strength, for purpose. And in this moment, they're drawn away from God because they realize in this moment they need something more tangible than him. Moses wasn't there. They looked to this idol and they said, this will save us. This will secure purpose and meaning for our lives. This will help us face our problems in the future. And it's a sobering reminder for us today that even though we're in this room and perhaps today uh, you're in this room and you say, I know Jesus, I'm a Christian. We still have to walk out of this building and face the idols of our culture. And every single one of them, no matter what they are, are going to say the same thing. You need to have me. And if you have me, then you'll have exactly what you need. If you have me, you won't be confused anymore. If you have me, you won't be anxious anymore. If you have me, you'll be able to face your future. If you have me, you'll have purpose and meaning in your life. And the reason we're often gravitating towards those idols instead of God is because of something that we forget in that moment. Psalm 106 actually helps us understand this passage better. Psalm 106 is a poem that is describing what is happening in the book of Exodus. In verse 19, it says this, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Why were they worshiping a calf? Why did they exchange the glory of God for this dead metal thing that eats grass? It's because they forgot the God who rescued them. They forgot the God who did great things for them. They had spiritual amnesia. These little parasites had gotten to their system, and over time, even though they were hanging out, even though they were there at the base of the mountain, even though they experienced these glorious things from God, they were going through the motions, all of a sudden, God was not real to them anymore. They needed something more real than God. They needed something more tangible than him in the midst of their fear and their doubt. He wasn't enough for them in this moment. So they turned to this golden calf. You see, the same is true for us in life. We're going to experience circumstances that are beyond our control. We're going to have those human moments where we're confused or where we're anxious about things, when we feel the vulnerability of our humanity. In those moments, we have to remind ourselves that we were once slaves in Egypt as well. But God has rescued us. In those moments, we have to remind ourselves that we were once without a father, but now we have a father who provides manna from heaven for us. It is in those moments we have to recall, despite our moods, despite our circumstances, what God has done for us. 
And in this ordinary life, we're going to face those ordinary challenges where idols are going to attract our hearts to say, we need this more than God. This is more real than God. This is more tangible than God. God has given us what we call the ordinary means of grace to remind us of who he is. You see, in John chapter 14, he tells his disciples, he's, uh, Jesus is about to leave, uh, and, and he's about to go to the cross, and, and at the cross, he's going to be crucified, and then he's going to be buried and resurrected and ascended to heaven. And he tells him, hey, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not just going to leave you without a way to, to fight the sin in this life. I'm not going to leave you alone, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You know what he says the Holy Spirit's going to do for us? The Holy Spirit's going to remind us of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind us that Jesus is more real right now to us than a metal image with four legs that eats grass. That is what the Holy Spirit does. He reminds us of who God is and what he has done for us. And he uses things like his ordinary means of grace, like his word, to remind us of who he is. Prayer, the ability to commune with God, which is perhaps the best measure if we found ourselves in a place where we have forgotten God, are we praying? Are we communing with God? And he's given us his people. You see, the best way to fight the the temptation, the drift into idolatry in our lives is to be transparent with others. You need people who know you in this life. You need people who can point you to the truth when you're forgetting it. You need people who can guide you back on the path when you swerve. We need people who know us and we can be transparent. And God in his grace has given us a church He's given us a room full of people who care for us, who know the love of God, who know that Jesus is much better than those idols that we're chasing, and who can help steer us back to the truth of what God has done for us. When we forget God, we find ourselves on the slippery slope towards full-blown idolatry. And that's what happens with the people of God here, and if we're not careful, that's what happens with us as well, because we are prone to wonder prone to leave the God that we love. Now, where's the hope, right? How do we have hope in this? When we turn our backs on God, when we leave God, where is the hope? Well, the hope is in the fact that God remembers something, that God doesn't leave us in our wondering. We pick up in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. It said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord says to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken about bringing on his people. Now in this back and forth dialogue between Moses and God, Moses hears for the first time from God what's actually happening at the bottom of the mountain, right? God tells Moses, hey dude, like, you don't really know what's happening here, but they're throwing a party down there. <laughs> it's not a good party. 
right? I mean, you left for five minutes and they've completely lost their minds. <laughs> they've forgotten everything that I've done for them. They've forgotten every way in which I've rescued them and cared for them. And they're worshiping this idol now. They have forgotten and they're saying that this idol is the one who has brought them out of Egypt. And God is angry. He's ready to cut bait here. We can't really underestimate the wrath of God at this point, right? I mean, think about all that he has done for them. And then five minutes later, they completely turn their back on him. It's not just something vindictive here. That's not what God is doing. They're risking, they're putting the whole enterprise of redemption at risk at this point. Because God didn't just rescue Israel for Israel. The promise he made to Abraham was that he rescued Israel so that they would be a light unto the world. That they would be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. The whole point is that he was making them into a great nation. And that as they went into the promised land, they were going to showcase to every other people group the God, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And every tribe and every language and every tongue would celebrate the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at this point, they are putting the whole thing at risk. And he's angry. And he says to Moses, why don't we just start over? You be the new Abraham, Moses. Right? We're just going to start this whole thing over. And in this moment, Moses steps in and he says, whoa, 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 God. Remember? Now, I don't want us to get too bogged down in this exchange because it can make our minds wonder what's happening here uh, simply means that God is threatening rightly in his wrath. He is threatening judgment on the people, right? But there's a difference between threatening judgment and decreeing it. God is not decreeing it. He's not trying to cast off his people here. In fact, what I think is actually happening here, perhaps this passage is more importantly pointing at Moses himself. Because I think what God's doing here more so is Moses is being tested by God in this moment. God is saying, hey, why don't we start over with you, Moses? Moses says, whoa, whoa, God, no, no. Remember. Remember your promise you made. He intercedes on behalf of the people. And Moses understands this moment as he intercedes on behalf of the people that there is no easy way for forgiveness to happen here. There is not easy for God just to forgive and forget in this moment. And sometimes we come to passages and we hear about God's wrath and his anger. We want to pit God's wrath and his anger against his love. But they they, they can't coexist, right? If he's a God of love, he can't be a God of wrath and anger, right? Those things don't go together. But that's not how we live our lives, do we? When you really love someone, does your heart not grow angry when someone hurts that individual? What fuels that? It is your love. When someone's life is going down a path that you, don't, you know is destructive for them, does not your love for them compel you to actually have wrath in that moment because you don't want them to go down that path? You see, wrath is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. And God is not indifferent. He loves the world too much to see this plan of redemption put at risk because they worshiped a golden calf. He's not going to stand by and let them ruin his creation. He's not. He's angry. And there's justice that needs to be paid in this moment. And we know this to be true in our own lives, right? We seek justice in life, don't we? When there's a crime, we want to see payment for that. When there's a debt, we want to see that debt fulfilled. That's the type of justice we seek in this world that brings true peace. But the reality is, not just for the people of Israel, but for all of us, when we've committed this great sin, as Moses would say it is, 
this idolatry in our hearts, we can work our entire lives towards redemption and it will never be enough to erase the weight of guilt because we can't save ourselves. But a non-wrathful God would be an accomplice to that injustice. A God who just stands by when sin is happening in this world would be an accomplice to that injustice, but God does not stand by here. God acts on behalf of his people. And I know this is weighty and it's hard to hear and it's hard to understand. And I know at times we want to just kind of try to mitigate the wrath of God as much as we can, right? I mean, even how sometimes I perceive my life, I think, well, hey, I'm in church today, right? Like, that's a good thing, all right? I'm not like the people out there who are skipping church for the bottomless DC brunches, okay? Like, that's a, that's a bonus, right? Like, that's good, right? I'm doing something better. And, and innately, what, what we do in that moment, right? We're suffering for Jesus in here, right? So what we do in that moment is we, we say to ourselves, well, at least I'm not like them, Right? And what we're trying to do is we're trying to mitigate God's wrath on the idolatry in our own hearts. Oh, they're the ones who should be blotted out, not me. But that's not what happens here in the text. God looks on his people and he says, there's got to be justice for what just happened. And Moses intercedes. He says, no, God, remember. Remember your promise to Abraham. Remember that you said you would make them a a, a nation a glorious nation, a nation which would bring redemption to the whole world. And what happens in his remembrance? God relents. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. He is the kind of God who will make a promise and see that promise fulfilled, even when we're not faithful. He remains faithful. How can God remain faithful in this situation? We'll look at verse 30. We get to the end of the chapter, and at this point, Moses has gone down to the mountain. He has seen with his own eyes what's happened. He heard the shouts, and he thought, those aren't shouts of war. Those those aren't shouts of cries. They are. They're dancing. What's going on? He goes down there, and his anger burns towards the people. He feels God's wrath at this moment, right? He throws the tablets down, and in his anger, he takes that idol. he, He melts it down. He grinds it up, and he makes the people drink it to show that how worthless their idol was. And the end result of that, which is a, a very tragic story here, the people actually die in this story. And it's a reminder for us that what idols and what idolatry leads to in the end is death. But then Moses goes back on the mountain. That's what he says in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, at last... This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses comes and he realizes the sins of the people are great. What does he do? He tries to be the atoning mediator for his people. He steps in and he says, God, remember your promise. We got to see this promise fulfilled. And so what I want to do, I'm going to step in the gap. Blot me out. If you can't forgive their sins, take take me instead. The thing is, Moses has really no reason to be the the, the solution to the problem because he can never atone for such things. How do we atone for such idolatry? And this is where we see the greater fulfillment in Jesus. 
You see, Moses was advocating on behalf of the people in this story, but Jesus would come and he would be described as the great advocate for us. And where Moses tries to step into this moment before God and say, God, remember, let, let me be blotted out instead of them. When we commit the sin of idolatry, Jesus actually steps right now at the right hand of the Father and says, God, remember. You can't punish these people sitting at King's Church today because you've already punished me for them. God, remember, you can't cast them out and forget them because you've already forsaken me on the cross for them. God, you can't have your wrath burn against them when they trust in me because you've already poured your wrath on me. You see, Jesus is the only one who can actually atone for our sins. He is the only mediator, the only one right now who can advocate for us before God and say, God, remember your promises. I have come to die in their place so that when you look at them, you see me. When you look at them, you don't blot their names out of the book of life because you've already poured that out on me. Jesus does that work for us. He is that great advocate who takes our idolatry. He takes our future idolatry. He puts it to death on the cross when we trust in him. Which means when Jesus came to this earth, he came in a pursuit to crush our idols. This is God's grace. And to the degree that we understand what we've been spared from in Christ Jesus, to the degree we understand how fierce God's anger and wrath was that he poured out on Jesus instead, is to the degree we will understand true forgiveness. And we remember what God remembers on our behalf. It changes us. We understand what should have happened to us, just like the people of Israel. When the logic of this situation demands that God take action against us because of our idolatry, instead he takes action for us. That is grace. And in God's grace, we can come today and we can know that it is safe to confess our sins. You see, at the end, this passage is really about this concept called repentance. I know we haven't mentioned it much, but it's essentially what this passage is reminding us of. This concept of repentance is that we can leave the idols of this world and we can turn to God. Now, why would we ever turn to a God and ask for forgiveness unless we already knew we were forgiven? I certainly wouldn't, right? But in God, in his graciousness to us in Christ Jesus, we can come week after week knowing that he is not going to condemn us, but he will forgive us. That we can have freedom to confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His arms are open to his children, which means today we can be fully transparent. We don't have to hide who we are before God. He wants to be gracious to us. He has already forgiven us. And as we do that, as we remember what God has remembered on our behalf, as we come to him and repent and we believe the gospel over and over in our hearts, the more we'll draw away from the idols of this world and into the glory of knowing the one true God. And so today as we come to communion, today is a day where you can lay down those idols. You can give those things that you've been seeking for satisfaction, for hope, to face your future. You can give those over and you can trust Jesus, the one who offers far more than any of those idols could ever offer us. And the way those idols can never fulfill and never give us hope, Jesus can. And the way those idols can never provide for us, Jesus can. And the way those idols can give us purpose, or we think they can give us purpose, Jesus can actually give us purpose. Today we can come and we can bring those idols to him.
we can come to the table and we can lay those things down and remind ourselves that Jesus died on the cross for us. We have nothing to lose today, nothing to fear, everything to gain in coming to Jesus and laying down our idols. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.